0: Okay, my name is David Earnshaw. I come from uh, Blackburn in Lancashire. Blackburn's a nice place to come from. Uh, <laughs> my mother now lives in Accrington. Why she lives there, I don't know, but she lives in Accrington. I'm one of six children. I became a Christian 40 years ago this month uh, in a little gospel hall which has now been pulled down. It's interesting, too, that the place where I got married has now been pulled down. <laughs> I was born in a thunderstorm. It's the kind of uh, tone for my entire ministry. Uh I trained in horticulture. Uh most people think that horticulture is cutting grass and pruning roses, but I was trained to be a plantsman, uh worked for the National Trust and Liverpool Botanical Gardens, and people like uh Alan Titchmarsh was my life saver, thinking, Ah, that's the kind of man I was aspiring to be. And then God called me very pathway to uh to leave the world of horticulture and to enter the ministry. And uh, he called me to teach his word. I'm not an evangelist, in the sense that you're an evangelist, but I love to talk about the Lord Jesus. Uh, without him, my life would be very, very poor. He's everything to me, and I love to talk about my saviour. And uh, but also, God called me to preach His word from from the book of Genesis right through to the book of Maps at the end. And, uh, <laughs> and so I've been doing that for thirty years. And generally speaking, I speak three times a week, and uh, I preach my way through forty three books of the Bible. And I'm on forty four and forty five at the moment. Lots of themes, and also different things as well. And also, I'm interested in, in church history, and I guess that's why I was asked to speak on, on this subject. I'm not an expert, but as you can well imagine, being a pastor, preaching week after week and uh, doing pastoral work, that preaching alone probably takes 25, 30 hours of my study per week. And uh, so when I was given this challenge to speak on the 18th and 19th and 20th century, uh, my heart said, yes. My head said, help, Where am I going to find the time? And I can tell you honestly, over these past 11 months, every spare minute I've had, I've spent reading about these three centuries, about three big piles of paper in my study, 18th, 19th, 20th century. And sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night and sort of think, right, I remember that for the morning, and go right on the page, 19th century, the thought I'd had in the evening. I've also travelled a little bit of the country throughout this past year, looking at one or two things in relation to what we're looking at. And uh, it's quite scary trying to pull all this together. Uh, Wilberforce was a very small man and it said that when he spoke about slavery and the release from slavery, that this small man, this shrimp, became a whale. Uh, I know preachers who are like whales and finish up like shrimps. And uh, I found this subject like a shrimp, but it's got bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm thinking, Lord, how can I squeeze this into three one-hour talks? I guess you've come across that uh, Little story of a university question which said this, please describe the universe and give one example. (laughs) That is so simple. How on earth can you talk about 18th century evangelism in in one hour? I'm going to leave so much out and probably be very, very disappointed, but I trust it will get you going, get you thinking. The 18th century came on the back of, of the 17th century, the 1600s. And that's a good place to start. And Britain was not in a very healthy state, or should I say England and Wales were not in a very healthy state during that period. It's a period that was ruled by, by the Puritans. Now, I discovered this. Everyone talks about the Puritans, but very few people read them. There was one man who said, a classic is a book that everyone quotes, but never reads. Is that right, Jonathan? I'm only joking. And uh, many people quote the Puritans, but never really read them. And uh, the Puritans dominated the Church during that that century. And, uh, sad to say, brought great aridity of heart and in Church life. And I've spent a lot of my time reading the Puritans. I also have in my library at home every lecture ever given at the Evangelical Library, every lecture ever given at the Puritan Conference, and every lecture... Ever given at the still going Westminster Conference. And I try and read a lecture a week on church history to broaden my mind and my understanding. And I spent the last 12 months wading through every one of those lectures. And I think it's true to say I'm a great fan of this stuff because I read it and subscribe to it. But my observation is this. By and large, the Puritans were more concerned about the purity of the church than the plight of the lost. And the big question was this, how do I know I'm one of the elect? And what is interesting is this, if you ever read Michael Eaton's book called uh, Encouragement, which was his PhD thesis, he describes in that book how he came across many of the deathbed quotations of the Puritans who died wondering whether they were actually saved or not. They had preached the truths of grace so much that in the end they doubted their own salvation. Every now and then you had people out of the mode, people like Richard Baxter, who were passionate about reaching lost people. And if you go to Kidderminster today, you'll find outside the church where Baxter was pastor a huge statue to that man, who spent his life reaching out to unsaved people in Kidderminster. But he was certainly an exception. And even John Bunyan, we talk about a man who was a Baptist. John Bunyan actually led his prison warder to faith in Christ. That's wonderful. But by and large, the church was wrapped up in the church. And I know as a pastor, I think I see myself as an internal organ, if you understand that in church life. And I know as a pastor, it is very easy to get so involved in internal church life that you never talk to people outside about the Lord Jesus. And so when I left my last church some six years ago, and spent three and a half years on the road, I tell you with my hand on my heart, I did more witnessing in three and a half years when I have not got a church, than in the previous 23 years when I was a pastor. Why? Because you get involved in church politics, denominational politics, this, that, and the other. And you think, is this what the kingdom of God really is about? And certainly I became wide awake to the fact that there are many people outside who see the church in a different way than we see the church inside. And so the Puritans were very inward-looking, but people every now and then broke out and began to think about those who were lost. Sad to say, this kind of Puritan way of doing church, which is still very prevalent today and still very strong in some circles, tends to put a great emphasis on revival instead of evangelism. When I went down to the Antarctic, I took my, with me nine books to read of a whole variety of styles and things, things like a Street Cat Named Bob, it's a great read, is that? Not theological, but it's very, very interesting. You must read it. Reading about the siege of Leningrad, but also lots of theological books. And I read a book just published recently about the Evangelical Movement of Wales, written by Errol Davis, talking about the history of the battle conference and the tension that took place in Wales in the 40s and 50s and 60s, even 70s, of men who only kept talking about revival. And the idea is... Why spend 50 years evangelizing when God can do it in five minutes? So let's wait for those five minutes. You know, why catch a bus that stops at every bus stop and is almost like a milk round when a taxi can come and do it twice as quick? And so the idea is, well, we won't really evangelize because God is sovereign. Let him do it in his time, and we'll just sit back. And there are some churches who still live with that kind of mentality. They talk about revival. They pray about revival. They have conferences on the signs of revival. Why are we not having revival But very rarely seem to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is Britain, England, Wales, coming up to the to the 18th century, where it was the church was inward-looking, it was barren, it was dry. Not many people looking outside. And then along came a little Englishman called John Wesley. In the days of the 18th century, the UK population was about five or six million at maximum. Today, it is 74 million. The population of London in the days of John Wesley was 750,000. Today, it is 8.5 million. Bristol, the next largest city, was 100,000. Today, it's 433,000. And and Newcastle, 30,000 people. These days, 157,000. And the reason why I mention London, Bristol, and Newcastle is because when John Wester began to evangelize, he had his routine. He went from London to Newcastle to Bristol to London. And sometimes to bring variety, London, Bristol, <laughs> Newcastle. Okay, And he did his circuit, and obviously he worked off from that circuit. But you can see Britain was incredibly small in those days. And therefore, one man preaching a message doing this circuit would soon touch most of the nation. And what is interesting is this. In those days, people lived very interdependent lives. You had your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker. You had to know if the baker was selling you a real pound of bread. And the baker was giving you a real pound of meat and it was genuine meat. And so, integrity was built into the community. And even though people lived further apart in the sense there weren't as many people as there are today, you knew everybody in the area, whether he was good, bad, or Mm. ugly. Therefore, if something happened in the community, everyone was touched. When I was flying back from uh, Buenos Aires and landed yesterday, as I was getting off the plane, I bumped into my next door neighbor who works in Philadelphia getting on the plane. I said, Lee, what are you doing here? He said, I'm going to work. He said, what are you doing here? I said, i just going back from the Antarctic. Wow, he said. See you. <laughs> How unreal is that? That's my next door neighbour. That's the first time I've spoken to him probably for three months. <laughs> I don't need him. And he doesn't need me. So when the church puts something on in the community, who do we reach out to? And this is the problem that we're now facing. And so while we have electronically been shrunk in this world, and everyone's involved in everything. To be honest, we've never been further apart. That's why it is very difficult when you put church events on to even get anyone to come. What is the community? I've lived in my village now for two and a half years. It's not my village, but it's where my wife and I live. And even kind of village life, I go, oh, it must be nice living in a village, it's very friendly. I live on an estate of 40,000 people in Wiltshire. I live in a village of 600 people. By and large, folk in the village just don't want to know. Just close the door. Us four, no more. So the world in which the 18th century kind of was born, while it was not as numerically strong, was very closely related. And when fire was kindled, it ran through the whole of the country very quickly indeed. Furthermore, that world in which John Wesley came, and also George Whitfield was a world in which, not only it was very small, but the brevity of life was very much upon people. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable these days. We, we sometimes say to people, uh, you know, how are you? Oh, it's fine, I just had a triple bypass. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been, to, I've been to Mallorca. Oh, it's good. And our expectations of the NHS these days are incredible. What people can have done and can't have done. In the days of the 18th century one bad illness in the words of Fred Dibner and it's half a day out with the undertaker. And when you look at the many illnesses that wiped out people in that generation you say I've had most of those but I've been cured in a week. But in those days the mortality and the shortness of life was very much upon people therefore speaking about eternal issues was very real. You try and get people to talk about eternal things these days. People are not interested in eternity. Well, I've got plenty of time. And and who knows if I get cancer, I'll be operated. If I've got a dicky heart, I could even have a heart transplant. Or at least a triple bypass. Wow. So when a man stood up and said, prepare to meet your God. People do exactly what they say. Because who knows, in a week they could be actually doing that. And so here is the, the 18th century with, with small numbers, inter-community, people aware of the brevity of life, the church incredibly arid, but suddenly the wind of the Spirit began to blow through some Moravians, the Moravians. The Moravians were interesting people, you've probably heard of a man called Nicholas von Zinzendorf, if you've got nothing else to do when you're in London, go to King's Road, It's opposite uh, Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea play. Uh, And opposite there is a small Moravian chapel with a little graveyard there, where a number of well-known Moravians are buried. The most important is a man called Peter Burla. One of Zinzendorf's sons is there, and other people indeed. But what happened is this. A Moravian, by the the name of James Hutton, he felt exercised that there were so many people in London who didn't know Christ. And so he rented a little chapel, 1727, and he invited Peter Bowler to preach the gospel in that chapel. Now both John and Charles Wesley later came in contact with Peter Bowler. He was the man who said to John Wesley, preach faith until you have it. That's wonderful advice. Think of the number of people you know who started off in the ministry unsaved and then preached themselves into the kingdom of God. One could almost say that it nearly happened to John Wesley. So here's this little Moravian gathering in London, meeting in a, in a higher chapel, and the gospel is being preached. Wesley was mightily influenced by these people. To show you the kind of man John Wesley was, in the end he wanted to meet Nicholas von Zinzendorf, but there was a problem. He spoke German and, and Wesley didn't. So while Wesley was traveling out to meet him, he taught himself German. <laughs> He was a bright very, that kind of man. When they met, they didn't get on together. He said, the man's a dictator. If you know anything about John Wesley, I think he met as much. For he was incredibly dictatorial. And generally speaking, have you noticed, the people that you don't like are generally like you? That's why you don't like them. Why? Because they stand up to you and you can see all their weaknesses as well. And so here is... is is. God moving gently in the center of London through some Moravians. What was the state of the church like? Unitarianism was rampant. Heresy was the order of the day. A man called Sir William Blackstone took it upon himself to visit every church in London to hear the sermon. His quotation is very interesting. He said, at the end of the day, I could not work out whether the men I listened to were Christians, Jews, he called them Mohammedans or Buddhists. And to be honest, if you sometimes analyze the stuff that comes out, I call it BBC Christianity. Songs of praise. Lots of talk about God, but what God? Yeah. No real talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you analyze a lot of the religion that is sent out on our television, on our radios, anyone could say that stuff. Peace. Let's work together. Let's save the whale and Blackstone said that's what it was like in those days St. Paul's Cathedral was so badly attended that to raise funds you could stall your horse in the church whether they sold manure as a bonus I really don't know Okay, and also people used to go in there to smoke and to drink and to play cards on the altar And by the way, the non-conformist church wasn't much better. Even though the non-conformist church church had stood its ground, it was dead and arid and, and falling out with itself. And how interesting that when Voltaire visited this country of ours and had a look around, he went back to France and said, Christianity is dying in that country and soon will be dead. He was right, apart from one thing. Our God specializes in resurrection. The year I went into the ministry, we had a man from the outside, outside our college world, who came to address us about how to choose the right church for yourself. He said, I'm coming to the end of my ministry, but let me give you a piece of advice. If you get called by a very hot church, go for it. He said, they'll probably ignite you. He said, if you get called by a dead church, go for it. It can only go one way. <laughs> he said, if you get called by a lukewarm church, don't. It will be your graveyard. And I would say after being in the minister for 30 years, he's exactly right. Kind of just want you to come to a church, tick the boxes, do the right thing. Don't do that, Pastor. We've always done it this way. The first man that really was moved by the Spirit of God in terms of being a real Englishman who was moved by what was happening in this country just quietly was, was, was George Whitfield. If you go to Gloucester you'll find several plaques around the town to do with George Whitfield. His, his parents were, were landlords of the Bell Inn. And, and he was converted. And you know the story that when he preached his first sermon back in the church in Gloucester that 15 people got converted. What a wonderful seal to one's call to ministry and salvation. So much so that the vicar complained to the bishop that this man has preached for me and sent 15 in my congregation mad. I say, Lord, smite us with that kind of madness. In fact, Charles, in one of his hymns, has this wonderful line: "Fools and madmen, let us be." How about that going on the screen? <laughs> "Fools and madmen, let us be for the kingdom of God." Well, that happened. And then suddenly uh, George Whitfield found that the doors of the church were closing to him. And so he had no option but to go into what he called field preaching. After he was converted, you know, he went to America. And then he, uh, he came back from, from America, found all this opposition towards him. And so he said, well, I'd better go into the highways and the byways. By the way, what I find very interesting, and I speak as, a, as, a, as an ardent nonconformist, uh we often kind of belittle people who have relics and the like. But if you go to Newburyport, over in America, you'll find that after George Whitfield died, when he'd decayed, they dug him up and put his skull in the vault of the church that so you can go and see. Isn't that amazing? And you have fools like me going to see it. <laughs> See the Scot- George Whitfield. <laughs> yeah, that's ten years up the Banner of Truth Conference. But well, anyway, <laughs> George Whitfield was was an incredible man. He was an educated man, but he was not like like John Wesley. He uh, he was big. He was he was an orator. He was an actor, without any doubt at all. And uh, his preaching was so dramatic that many people used to shout out when he was preaching. Because they'd actually entered into his sermon. On one occasion he was preaching about a man coming to a cliff edge. And is he going to go over? Is he not going to go over? And such was his preaching that one man stood up and said, Good God, he's gone! (laughs) We may think, well, no need for the blasphemy, sir. But at least he was listening. (laughs) At least he was involved. And and David Garrick said on one occasion, "I, I would give anything, anything to say Mesopotamia like George Whitfield. (laughs) He was a preacher, he was an orator, but often beyond that, the Spirit of God was moving powerfully in his life. He felt exercised to go to Moorfield in London. He went one Sunday in 1739 and was told, if you go on a Sunday, you will not come out alive. To show you what was happening in the nation, he went to this place in London on Sunday morning, no church, 20,000 people came to listen to him. That shows you, does it not, that if people had given up on the church, there was still some hunger within the nation. That when a man stood up and said, thus says the Lord, they were prepared to go and hear him. On another occasion, he preached on Kennington Common to 40,000 people. And when you consider the size of London, that's absolutely massive. He went to Bristol on one occasion, and no less than 20,000 people listened to him at Hammond Mount. But when I told you that Bristol had a population of 100,000, that is a fifth of Bristol, a fifth of the city, went to hear George Whitfield preach. That could not come about through any human engineering, but the Spirit of God was certainly moving powerfully. In the end, he settled down in Moorfield, and his church had a wonderful name, the Soul Truck. Being, if you went there, you probably will get caught by the Spirit of God. We sometimes argue of what we should call our names and how interesting in the 21st century many evangelical churches are dropping the word evangelical because they're embarrassed in the name. My dear friends, we can change our name titles left, right and center and call it whatever church we want but if the Spirit of God is not there we're just fooling ourselves. When the Spirit of God is there ought to have a church known as a soul trap where people are arrested By the Holy Spirit. When I lived in Wiltshire and used to fly out to Bristol, I used to pass the end of the street where George Whitfield did the dirty on John Wesley. By now, John was converted, and and Charles said to, uh, sorry, George said to John, "Do you mind coming down to Bristol to help me with the work?" Uh, And so John John came down, and he heard George Whitfield preach powerfully. And then he said, tomorrow there's there's a meeting here for all those who've been interested in what I've just been saying. A kind of follow-up meeting. What George didn't tell John Wesley is that that night he was going off to America. And so he said to John, do you mind doing the meeting tomorrow? so John turned up with all these converted miners and common people while George was on his way to America. And that's how John Wesley found himself introduced to field preaching. Because John was beginning to discover by this stage that the church was doing to him what it did to George Whitefield, what it did to our Savior, closed its doors upon him. And you know as well as I do, established religion has always been the biggest hindrance to the gospel. If you if you misunderstand the role of the Pharisees in the Gospels, I would say you misunderstood the four Gospels. They are the biggest players outside of the disciples. And they caused our Lord the most grief. And when you go through the history of the Christian church, is it is embarrassing to see how organized religion has caused great problems for the spread of the Gospel. Well, that's what was happening in those days. John was an interesting man. He was very, very small. Very cultured. John spoke seven languages. When he spoke to his brother, he always spoke in Latin, and Charles responded likewise, so that other people wouldn't hear what they were saying. And when they wrote to each other, for fear that their letters would be interfered with, they devised another language, so they wrote to each other in code. So here's a man, he speaks seven languages, He invents a coded language, speaks in Latin to his brother, learns German while he's going to Moravia. And God says, you're just the right vessel to reach this country called England. By the way, when he was preaching, he had no bodily movement. He would just stand there and preach in his his gown. And and a, a dear friend said to him, John, I love your preaching, but a little more animation would help. So every now and then John would do this, <laughs> just to kind of break the monotony. And uh, he wasn't an orator. He wasn't an orator. He wasn't poetical. He was very, very pragmatic, and he had great distaste for emotional religion. And, and, and forgive me, I'm being slightly naughty here, but but. Uh, when sometimes we sing Charles's hymns, you know, and can it be, my chains fell off. And, and you can see, you, you're in the pulpit, you think, here comes the line, my chains fell off. I sometimes think, if, Ch- if John was here, he'd go put them down. <laughs> no need for that. No need for that. We know how you feel without showing it with your arms. And uh, Sir Walter Scott, you know, the, the, the writer Sir Walter Scott, Ivan Ho and all that, he, he went to hear John Wesley preached. He said he wasn't impressed. He said he told some very nice, homely stories. But his preaching did nothing for me whatsoever. How interesting. Because the church was so dead and so dry and so arid and was rejecting the message he was preaching and that George Whitfield was preaching, then John, in the end, had no option but to go into field preaching. We know on one occasion he stood on his father's gravestone seven nights running and preached Christ. He said he had more fruit during that week than he had for months labouring inside churches. How interesting. By the way, I just keep putting footnotes in just to make you think and get me sort of ticking over. Why is it? Why is it in the 21st century in Britain it seems that more souls are coming to faith in Christ outside the church than in the church? Why? It's almost happening all over again, isn't it? So here's a man, his message is received in the church. He stands on a gravestone. He preaches Christ. Many, many people come to the Lord Jesus. Listen to his comments, though. He didn't like it. He didn't like it. He writes this on the 31st of March, 1739, after watching George Whitfield preach. He didn't like what he saw, but he realized it was effective. He said, at four in the afternoon, it reminds me of John's Gospel. You know how John chapter 1 says, now this happened at this hour and this hour. John says at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. This is an educated man, you see. He, He was an Oxford man. His father was an Oxford man. His grandfather was an Oxford man. He was up to here with religion, with Anglicanism, with all the state stuff. And for a man like that, with all his education, to step out of the pulpit and to become a preacher to these people. He said, I consented. To become more vile. And proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in the ground adjoining to the city to about three thousand people. <laughs> sometimes when I read these quotations, I think to myself, yeah, we sometimes we sometimes preach the gospel to a full chapel, two hundred people go, that wasn't bad, two hundred there tonight. There's about a hundred thousand people out there, I haven't heard a word of it. And so John said, I had to become more vile, because that's where the people were. He said on another occasion, he said, It was still my desire to preach in a church rather than in any other place. But many obstructions were now laid in the way. Being thus excluded from the churches and not daring to be silent, it remained only to preach in the open air, which I did at first, not out of choice, but out of necessity. I stood in the street and cried, Now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The people gathered from all sides. And when I prayed, knelt down upon the stones, rich and poor, all around me. And then he writes in his journal, Church or no church, we must attend to the saving of souls. How about these quotations from his journal? Do you read John West's journal? You must Imagine going to glory and, and, and you meet John and he says, did you read my journal? Fancy getting eternity off to a bad start. He writes this in his journal. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. He writes elsewhere, it is no marvel that the devil does not love field preaching. Neither do I. This is, I love this quotation. I love a commodious room, a soft cushion, a handsome pulpit. But where is my zeal if I do not trample all these things underfoot in order to save one more soul? And think of how radical it was for this man to say, I look upon the whole world as my parish. So can you see the Puritans inward-looking? Are you saved? Or are you not saved? I don't know. We'll just have to wait and find out. To a man who says, the world is my parish. Men are dying outside of Christ. We're dying in our religion. Let's get out and share the gospel, even though it's ugly. And I can echo those feelings. I love a good nonconformist chapel. Some good hymns, some good songs, good bit of preaching. But then God said to me, David... This is not what the Christian life's about. Some of us feel that, you know, it doesn't get better than a good preach. But no, it's not about that. It's, it's being fed than going out to the world. Yeah. And so here's this man driven by necessity to go and preach Christ. Seven years after the death of John Wesley, he had introduced 149 circuits, 101,702 members, 294 ministers and 19 missionaries. By the way, at his death, almost one in 30 in this country was a Methodist. One in 30. Cornwall, 49% of Cornwall, after the move of the Spirit of God during this revival, 49% of Cornwall went to church. And of that 49%, 32 were Methodists, 32%. And on top of this, by the way, he uh, he went to America before he was converted, but also he went to, to Ireland, to Wales, to Scotland. The man was unbelievable. During his life, he traveled 250,000 miles being on the back of a horse, I once rode on the back of a horse for an hour. (laughs) I felt like John Wayne. (laughs) That's nine times around the world. He paid more road tax than any other man in England in the 18th century. Because he was on the road so often. How amazing. Powerful man. By the way, he was a quirky man. He... And George Whitfield would never preach without their clerical gowns. And if his gown didn't arrive, he wouldn't preach. Why? He was fearful of being associated with the nonconformists and the dissenters. As if, ah. I, I, and I say this carefully, and, uh, you I mean, I, I trust it's said in good spirit. I, I know as a Baptist pastor that when it comes to church things in this country, I'm number three. You have the Church of England, then the Catholic Church, and then the Nonconformists. You're always at the bank. As if, what do you believe? Are you a sect? And if you remember the brethren, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> and so I know from experience of being a pastor that if people are in a crisis, they'll go more to the parish church than the local Baptist church, generally speaking. And Wesley didn't want to kind of be associated with these people who rebelled so he always wanted to be associated with the church and so always preached with his gown and any etching or picture you have of John Wesley, that is what it's like and by the way I, I like his philosophy, always look a mob in the face that's good advice for any preacher <laughs> always look a mob in the face, and he said they'll no, back down and yet the treatment he received was absolutely unbelievable you know how it is sometimes people ring and say pastor, it's a bit cold so I won't be here tonight. This is a man who's riding through raw weather, sometimes arriving drenched in rain and then frozen with the cold weather, and he preaches Christ. And he looks a mob in the face. We're too soft. Sometimes we're a bunch of jesses. You know, he was a strong man with the constitution of an ox. Incredible, incredible man. And his simple philosophy was this: I like it. Go for sinners. And go for the worst. Go for sins, and always go for the worst. Now, what is encouraging to know is this, that what God was doing in his life, in throwing open the doors of the nation to the gospel, in a way that had never happened before, God was doing in the lives of other people as well. His brother Charles, before Charles got married and settled down, John Berridge never married and said it was the undoing of Charles. She'd never have got married. Uh, he'd have done far more without his wife. What a thing to say. But anyway, I think a bit of envy there, really. But anyway, Charles was on the road for 11 years preaching the gospel. Just like his brother John. And William Grimshaw. Many exaggerated stories are told about William Grimshaw using uh, a horsewhip to drive people into the church. That's myth. That's myth. But you know, when he finished there at Howarth, he had a thousand people breaking bread. A thousand people. Powerful. You go to Howarth Church today, you'll be hard pushed to find anything to do with William Grimshaw. Plenty about the Bronte's, but the man who turned the place upside down, nothing at all. Henry Venn. He went to Huddersfield for three years. And in three years, through his preaching, this is going on while the Wesleys are preaching and John Whitfield is preaching, in Huddersfield, 900 people came to Christ in three years, knocking on his door on a regular basis. Benjamin Ingham, have you heard of the Inghamites? There's only one Inghamite chapel left in this country. Benjamin Ingham was one of the Holy Club in Oxford. And uh, he disagreed with John Wesley, or John Wesley disagreed with him. John Wesley could fall out with himself he was that kind of man and I'll come to that in a moment uh, and so they parted company and so Benjamin Ingham began to preach and his followers were called Inghamites and I was over in Yorkshire two or three years ago and found the church where he's buried I find it very sad that there's no plaque, he's just in the vault there was a man greatly used of God Benjamin Ingham, William Hervey he was another man from Western Fable he was one of the Holy Club God did powerful things to these men up and down the land, John Verich John Berridge of Everton, which was mentioned a short while ago by by Jonathan. In in one year, and we we can't call the man a liar, surely. He says, in one year, I led 4,000 people to Christ. Good year. 4,000. Without any doubt at all, the Spirit of God was moving across the nation and moving across, across the hearts of men and women in this land and raising a powerful, powerful people. And while that was happening in England, oh by the way, let's not forget Wales. Daniel Rowland of Hangitha. Listen to this for his CV. Throughout his ministry, a hundred ministers in the Principality of Wales put their conversion down to his preaching. I think I'd be happy with a hundred converts. But a hundred ministers. And when he used to break bread, two thousand people used to gather as he preached God's word and distributed the elements. Amazing. By the way, he had a servant. A lot of his people had servants. And on one occasion Daniel Rowland was so weary with preaching, he said to his servant, you have a God. <laughs> and, and the historical account is the Spirit of God was so tangible that even the man who'd never preached before in his life had heard his master preach so often, he was so anointed by the Spirit that folk were come into faith in Christ. <laughs> It shows you that God was moving very, very powerfully. William Williams Pantacarin Howell Harris Chagarath When I was over in Dublin I went to look out the grave of a man called Gideon Oosley. Has anyone ever heard of Gideon Oosley? Maybe just one or two. He was the John Wesley of Ireland. You know, you've made me read more books this year than you ever realise. Read the biography of Gideon Oosley. He led thousands to Christ in Northern Ireland. He would preach about 25 times a week. <coughs> I know pastors who were stressed after one. And they go, got a busy week. Two Bible studies and I'm leading a house group. Think, what are you in the ministry for then? This man was preaching on his horse, off his horse, 25 times a week. Not just one week, to perpetually. Leading thousands to Christ. I could go on, it's almost like Hebrews 11, what shall I say? Let me begin to bring this to a close and it will get more interesting as we get into the 19th century and the 20th century. We start to bring it to where we are and start to apply it. Let me just say a number of practical things. The first thing to say is this. These men that I've mentioned, and there were far more than I've mentioned, were the first people really since the days of Wycliffe, to go out and give the gospel to people who needed to hear. When I started to preach, I, I can see myself now. I preached in Rishton Gospel Hall to about eight people and a dog. And uh, I was 16. I cringe when I look back. And, and I, I, I said quite naively, what do I want me to preach on? The gospel, of course. So I said, will there be any non-Christians in? You just never know, a brother, who the Lord may send in. Now I was over that kind of philosophy. You just never know who the Lord may send in. Well, he never seemed to send anybody. in. That's interesting. These men said, no, no. If they're not going to come in, we've got to compel them. And we're going to go out to the highways and the byways. And so we're going to go out to meet them. And so, a man in my first church said to me, he said, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, we preach the gospel at 11 o'clock or half past six. Hmm. this was the man who sat in the Dr. like Jones I said I'll preach it whenever I want to what I said do you not trust me with God's word I said I'll preach it because in the text I will apply it what is amazing is that this man's son came to Christ through my ministry so he said uh, he rang me one morning he said Pastor I've got some good news for you please be cautious He said, my son became a Christian last night when he preached. I said, that's good. He said, we better watch him just to make sure it's real. Sorry, what was that idea? We better watch him to make sure it's real. What a way to start a Christian life. My dear friends, you can't squeeze the gospel into a half past six gospel service. In fact, I don't read of gospel services in the Bible. I read of people going out into the world and sharing their Christian faith. These people took the Bible seriously. Secondly, they were incredibly clear about what the gospel really was. On one occasion, it's a lovely quotation of John Wesley. To me, it's my favorite one of John Wesley. He was in Glasgow and he went to the local Anglican church and he heard the vicar preach. And he wrote to his brother Charles and said, Dear Charles, I was in church this morning in Glasgow. Believe me when I say, there was more gospel in an Italian opera than in his sermon. (laughs) You know, a lot of, a lot of God talk these days is just frothy nonsense. These men understood, no matter how people ridicule this, that people are lost outside of Christ, ruined by sin, need to be redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's the Gospel. A lot of what passes as a the Gospel these days It's just like the Italian opera. Keeps people entertained, but it will not get them into the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you almost travel land and sea to make a convert, and when you make one, the more lost in you are. Strong stuff. Thirdly, these people in the 18th century set their heart on reaching the driftwood of society. Hence the reason why these Went to the undesirables. And when you read of the people who were converted, hardened sinners, people dead in trespasses and sins, and showing all the signs of being totally lost. But they went to them, and such was the clarity of the gospel and the spirit of God moving that these people were saved. And I sometimes wonder, really, I speak to myself with all the evangelism I've done over the years as a pastor, and the churches I've been involved with, I sometimes say to myself, David, if I had your, if I had my life to do again, I think I wouldn't do any of this stuff, because all it's doing is entertaining the saints. Really? How many non-saved people have I really shared the gospel with? What is interesting is this, they went for the driftwood. One of the criticisms levelled against Methodism is that is that Wesley converted more women than men. So of all the converted Methodists, two to one was the ratio with women to men, which is interesting. And by the way, the two strongest places where Wesley had his greatest success were Yorkshire and Cornwall. So why is that? Because the people in those two counties We're more independent in their occupation and we're not dependent, we're not dependent on the landowner. If your boss is a card carrying member of the local Anglican church and your property is on his land and you go against what the vicar says, you're in trouble off the land and you lose your job. But if you're not living in one of those kind of situations, which was very true of Yorkshire and Cornwall, then you can come to faith in Christ and maybe go along to a local Methodist church and you know you've still got your job. And again, we're back to this business. That's why many, many people were freed up in Yorkshire and also freed up in Cornwall as well as spiritual things as well. The fourth thing to say is this. These men knew an anointing of the Holy Spirit. how we cover that in our own lives and in our own churches. An anointing of the Holy Spirit. I heard it said of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, that man could preach from the woman's own and get converts. Well, I wouldn't put it as blunt as that. But there was anointing on these men. And sometimes we can put people through colleges and through courses, and it's all perfunctory, but where is that anointing of the Spirit? And these men knew a liberty. And if if I would make one personal observation, there is so much about 21st century evangelicalism in our country that is so lacking the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It is so cold that it doesn't even move me as a Christian. So how is it going to move an unsaved person? How do you say, Lord, I sometimes wonder, perhaps just cut a few of our meetings because they're not doing anything other than cluttering our lives up. And Lord, perhaps to spend more time praying for an unction from above. That what we do, we do well and do effectively. And the final thing to say is this. While all these men were churchmen, mostly they were mavericks. They were lone riders. They weren't committee men. They weren't out to build their own kingdom. They were just passionate about the kingdom of God. Spurgeon said, I, I love a committee made up of one man. And think of the hours that we sometimes spend on committee meetings discussing this and discussing that, and you think after 20 years, have we moved anywhere at all with all this? Now, I'm not against planning, don't get me wrong, that's the last thing I'm saying, but these, if these men had waited for authorization from denominations of churches that have never gone out, they said, Lord, I'm going to go out in your name and do it. And out they went. But the opposition, wow, I just got three... Uh, Three tracts here written by Anglican clergymen against the Methodists. This is by John Kirby. Here's the title of the book. A full discovery of the horrible blasphemies taught by those diabolical seducers called Methodists. You got that on the stall, Jonathan? Okay, here's the vicar of Jewsbury. Methodists are furious disciples of Antichrist. Reverend scavengers and filthy pests and plagues of mankind. And Bishop Warburton called Wesley a wily and malignant hypocrite. I kind of look at that and think, I've had an easy life. (laughs) If you go to Bristol, if you go into the horse fair, you'll find Wesley's chapel. If you go in there, you'll notice the windows are very, very high. That was to stop him being stoned when he was preaching. Stop got windows flying in and hit the preacher. At one entrance to the chapel, there's a statue of John, and the other is a statue of Charles. John is on his horse, and Charles is stood there with one hand now stretched, and a hymn book in the other. And these are the words, I love them. Thy faithfulness, Lord, each moment we find, so true to thy word, so loving and kind, Thy mercy so tender to all the lost race, the vilest offender may turn and find grace. Oh, let me commend my Savior to you. I set to my seal that Jesus is true. You all may find favor, who come at his call. Oh, come to my Savior. His grace is for all. God lit a fire that burned passionately in those days. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said when he felt slightly discouraged, he would go for a walk in the 18th century. And also he said, when I felt I'd done rather well, and he's a man who to 2,000 people every Sunday morning and evening, he said, I would go for a walk into the 18th century and realize I hadn't yet started. Just as pray, we'll have some questions and answers. Father, we'll read of these brothers and also sisters of ours in Christ and realize that our relatives, it stirs our hearts because we follow the same Savior. But Father, we admit we're not living in the 18th century and, and to be honest, humanly speaking, I'm not all that sure. Many of us want to go back to those days in terms of the depravity and the hardships and the shortness of life. But Lord, spiritually, oh, we cover a touch of your Holy Spirit. Father, forgive us that so often we dabble in the shallows and feel content with just keeping things ticking over. We pray like Mr. Wesley, may we go for sinners. And go for the worst. Father they were mavericks. They had massive faults. But Lord I find that so encouraging. Because when I look in the mirror. I see them in myself. But more so. Father in spite of our weaknesses. And in spite of our sinfulness. Would you please work in us. And through us. For the glory of your name. And for the extension of your kingdom. And Father I give you thanks. This is not fantasy. This is reality. And one day, we're going to meet these people. And the millions who came to faith through hearing these people commend the Savior to them. What a day that's going to be. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Amen. Amen.